Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. I do not care for sports. I've just never been able to really get into them, both as a spectator or participant, though I will say I am an excellent badminton player. I think a lot of my dislike for popular sports stems from my experiences playing them as a kid, which is to say, I was pretty terrible. There's nothing quite like little league sports to lower the self-esteem of the shortest and skinniest kid on the team. My position for most of my little league baseball career was right field, which is where, for that age group, they put the worst players because the ball rarely goes out that far. Most of the time, I would just sit out there on the field with my glove on top of my head. I remember my dad once standing at the fence encouraging me to get into the game to which I thought there really was no game to get into. I did like some of the social aspects of it, you know, getting to hang in the dugout with my teammates, and I do remember there being a pretty good candy selection in the concession stand. But it really just wasn't anything I was ever going to be excited about doing or watching. And even though I've never cared for sports, I don't fault anyone who does. In fact, I sort of get it. You see... There exist many parallels between sports and music fandom. I would say that our devotions can be pretty intense. We both have our specific teams and regions that we support, staunch opinions about the teams we don't support, and each entity is filled with larger-than-life characters with remarkable gifts that we're constantly rooting for and inspired by. Sports are a big deal to many people, especially in the South and especially for males. And as a kid that didn't care about them, this did at times make me feel like a bit of an outcast. And that's why I feel so fortunate to have eventually found my community through music. Through learning an instrument and being in a band as a teenager, for the first time, I was able to experience what it felt like to truly be on a team, to be valued, supported, and inspired by my teammates. Now, I've made it no secret on this show about my deep-seated affection for the music of Athens, Georgia, and specifically the mid-to-late-90s, early-2000s music scene that heavily featured the Elephant Six Collective. And being a fan of Elephant Six, it felt like I was rooting for the home team. But I also related to them stylistically. So much of the mainstream music of the 90s to me felt too dark and angst-ridden, and sure... I was filled with lots of angst as a teenager, but it didn't typically come in the form of anger. But with Elephant Six's quirky and warped take on pop music and their unabashed love of the Beatles and Beach Boys, I felt like I had finally found my tribe. I first learned about Elephant Six through the band of Montreal, who had released much of their early music through my favorite indie label, Kindercore Records. And it was through of Montreal that I started to learn about the many related bands from Athens and elsewhere, such as Great Lakes, Beulah, The Minders, The Gerbils, Neutral Milk Hotel, Olivia Trimmer Control, and The Apples and Stereo. I would soon gobble up any music from the various related projects that I could get my hands on. There were so many great and interesting bands to discover, and so many great songs. Two songs that were particular favorites of mine from this period, and that have graced many a mixtape, were Simon the Bird with a Candy Bar Head and Will My Feet Still Carry Me Home, both by Elf Power 
When I first happened upon these songs and discovered they were both from Elf Power's 1999 record, A Dream in Sound, and that that record was produced by Dave Fridman, producer of another record from that same year that I really loved, The Soft Bulletin by The Flaming Lips, I knew this had to be a record for me. And when I finally got a copy of A Dream in Sound, I put it on and I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Andrew Rieger, and I am the singer-songwriter of Elf Power. Dream and Sound, I mostly played guitar and sang, and uh, yeah, probably probably played a few other instruments as well. But that's that's uh, you know my main my main role in the band. Andrew Rieger grew up on the western end of South Carolina, and with his hometown being in fairly close proximity to Athens, the city would play an important role in Rieger's life as a youth, especially as he began his interest in music. I grew up in a small town called Greenwood, South Carolina. It's about 80 miles from Athens. So yeah, I used to come over. I mean, Greenwood didn't really have much uh, going on musically. So um, we would drive over in high school just to go to the record store and to see shows and stuff. So, you know, Athens was, was within within reach. And so we would come over here a lot just to, uh, you know, get that get that fix of, of music. When I first got into music, it was just, you know, kind of the hits of the day in the the early 80s. You know, stuff like Duran Duran and Culture Club and Men at Work and just, you know, whoever the popular bands were. I mean, I still like those bands, uh, but, you know, more more commercial stuff. And then, you know, as I got to be a little older and got to be a teenager, um, I got really into skateboarding and we had a big skateboard ramp in my backyard, a half pipe. And uh, got into a lot of punk and hardcore music that kind of went along with that whole vibe. Um, you know, Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys and, and uh, Bad Brains and stuff like that. And at the same time, got into, got into I guess, what was called alternative music at the time. Stuff like The Cure and Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., R.E.M., The Replacements. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my, my early entry into music and and my uh my dad was always into music um and my mom as well and so i grew up with with a lot of music being played around the house after graduating from high school rieger moves to athens to attend the university of georgia and finds the city's music scene in transition it is after some time that rieger becomes a participant in the local scene which would eventually lead to him starting elf power well around that time it was kind of an interesting period because um I think like in the in the early '80s when when REM was was big, a lot of a lot of bands kind of moved to Athens to try to to piggyback on that sound and that success, uh, you know. And some of, some of those bands were good, and some of them weren't. Um, and so I think by by the early '90s, uh, people were sick of, of that, you know. And so the better, more popular bands in town were a bit heavier. Um, you have bands like Five Eight and the Jackanuts and um, 
Corn Orchard and, you know, they were all kind of noisier, heavier bands. So that was, uh, and all, you know, really good. Um, so that was kind of the, the better, more popular bands at the time were, were of that ilk. The first year that I lived here, I lived in the dorms. And so that wasn't very conducive to, uh, to playing music and just, you know, just kind of meeting people. I didn't really know anybody when I moved to town. So it took me about a year and then, yeah, formed this band Spawn, um, with some friends, one of which was Brian Poole, who went on to be in Elf Power. And, uh, yeah, did that for a couple years. And uh, we we did some recordings, but nothing that was ever released. Um, so then Elf Power got kind of started around 94. More is just a recording project for me to kind of come up with songs. You know, at the same time, I was getting into stuff like Sebado and Guided by Voices and Tall Dwarves, all these bands that did... Um, you know, they basically recorded their albums on cassette four track. And that was really a revelation to discover that you could make these albums that sounded amazing on, uh, you know, at home for next to nothing. Um, and so, yeah, the first Elf Power album, um, Vainly Clutching at Phantom Limbs, was uh, recorded in 94 uh, on cassette four track. Um, and it was mostly just me kind of learning teaching myself how to be a songwriter and and recording and just kind of blindly stabbing at it and uh eventually came up with some results that i liked so in in all my other bands i had been just the guitar player and uh with the help of the four track i kind of taught myself how to sing so you know come up with these these songs, uh, you know, chord progressions and songs, and then I would just kind of sing nonsense over it on the four track until I came up with some a melody that I liked, mm -hmm. and then refine the lyrics into something real. Uh, so it was really a great songwriting tool as well as a you know recording tool. And it wasn't until a few years later that it really became more of like a real functioning band. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the the first album. Vainly clutching at Phantom Limbs. Like I said, I mostly recorded it myself with a couple friends helping out um, here and there. And I put it out on vinyl and it got a good response. And so people started asking me to play shows. And I said, well, I guess I better put a band together to, to play shows. So it was kind of the opposite way of how a lot of people do it, where, you know, the band is, is just, you know, four or five people that write songs together and then, you know, start playing shows and then record. For me, it was it was kind of the opposite. It is around this time that bands connected to the Elephant Six Collective began to emerge within the local scene in Athens, as well as other places throughout the U.S. Yeah, well, Elephant Six is it's just kind of like a loose congregation of like-minded friends who are all into collaborating and home recording and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just like a bunch of friends and everybody would kind of play on each other's records and be part of everybody's projects. And, and the lineups of those various projects were usually pretty fluid. You know, you kind of grow up thinking, 
oh yeah okay so a band is these four people but but yeah that was never for 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 us it was more like you know a songwriting project for for one person and other people helped out and i mean sometimes that was just for practical reasons or people you know people had other obligations or you know sometimes you don't get along with somebody and you don't want to play with them anymore so you know various various reasons i think would lead to those those lineup changes the Olivia guys and the Apples and the Neutral Milk Hotel people, um, or at least some of them, Jeff, Robert, Will and Bill, all kind of grew up together in Louisiana. Um, and so they, they were the ones who started the Elephant Six as a thing. And then later it branched out to where, you know, Will and Bill would, would uh, you know, ask us if we wanted to be a part of it and robert would ask other you know like the minders which was another great band out in denver where robert lived at the time um if they want so yeah then then you know we were kind of like the second wave of included in like the second wave of of those bands so yeah i met the olivia tremor control guys first will and bill um at a party uh that they were playing with a friend of mine's band and uh you know, that was really cool because I had recorded Vainly Clutching and, and put it out and they had recorded the early Olivia singles. And so we traded, uh, you know, and it was really cool to see that there were other people that were into the, you know, lo-fi kind of four-track home recording cassette four-track vibe because most of the other bands in Athens were more of just like recording a professional recording studio type vibe. Um so yeah, the Olivia guys were the first people that I really met that had that similar aesthetic. Elf Power would eventually solidify into a quartet, with Rieger being joined by former Spawn bandmate Brian Poole on bass, drummer Aaron Waglin, and multi-instrumentalist Laura Carter. It is with this lineup that Elf Power would make their first record as a band. So Vainly Clutching came out in 95, and... Uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, over the next year or two, we had a couple different lineups. And then probably late 96, early 97, we really formed the lineup that, re- that became, you know, that, that lineup for the next couple of years. And we recorded uh, Red King on an eight-track cassette, which was a step up from a four-track cassette, but still pretty trashy sounding. But we had a, a few more tracks to work with. Yeah, that was mostly recorded in a house on Grady Avenue where um, Lara lived with uh, Jeff and Julian from Nutramilk and our friend Robbie from the music tape. So there was a lot of lot of recording going on over there at that time, and that's where we recorded a lot of, of the Red King album. For the release of When the Red King Comes, the band signs with a New York-based independent label, Arena Rock Recording Company. I think we were kind of maybe halfway through recording that when um that label got in touch with us and they had heard vainly clutching and liked it and uh yeah so we signed with them and ended up putting out a couple records with them they had pretty good distribution in america and then we would sign with other like we had labels in um 
in England and Japan and Australia that we would license the records to for those territories. Um, label from Oxford, Shifty Disco, put out um, a couple of our records in England, and really that was they were really instrumental in getting us over to start touring Europe for the first time. Um, so yeah, uh, but Arena Rock was run mostly by this guy Greg Glover. He worked for another label called London Records that was a subsidiary of. I can't remember if it was Sony or Warner Brothers, um, but they had kind of some big alternative acts. Um, I can't remember which ones right now, but uh, but yeah, so he, you know, he he definitely had some connections in the music business through his his day job working for this this bigger label. Um, yeah, he had pretty good distribution. Um, although when the distributor went bankrupt, uh, we got shafted and didn't get a lot of money that was owed to us, which, uh, was a common pitfall of, of the industry at that time. Following the release of When the Red King Comes, Rieger begins to compile the songs for its follow-up. I mean, I'm always kind of writing and recording. I mean, it's just kind of a constant, constant process with me. And then after a while, you realize you have enough songs for an album. So when the Red King album came out in 97, that's when we first really started touring a lot. And 98 was a big year of touring for us. We did our first big national tour with Neutron Milk Hotel and the music tapes and the gerbils going all around the country in 98. And then I think we did a couple more tours that year with of Montreal and Olivia Tremor Control and Fable Factory. So we were touring a lot that year. So yeah, just kind of riding, you know, both when we were home and, and on the road. Definitely was, um, I mean, both the, the title of the album signifies this and just a lot of the lyrics is there was a lot of dream imagery, which I was, I was interested at the time and I was doing like dream journaling where I try to remember my dreams and write them down. And sometimes I would incorporate some of that imagery into the song. Um, I think as I was writing, it just kind of, after a couple songs kind of had that continuity, then I consciously tried to extend that through to the rest of the songs. For a dream and sound, the band is given the opportunity to work with producer Dave Fridman, who at the time had just completed work on the Flame and Lips seminal album, The Soft Bulletin. They had recorded a lot of it. Dave was playing us mixes, but it wasn't out yet. That was also really cool of, you know, being fans of the Flaming Lips and being able to hear, um, you know, this next album that they were working on that wasn't out yet. So we were big fans of the Flaming Lips and Mercury Rev. Uh, you know, two of the, the, the bigger bands that Dave uh, recorded. We really loved the sounds that he got on those records. Um, the guy who ran Arena Rock, Greg Glover, he had worked with Dave Fridman um, for one of the bands on the major label subsidiary London that he worked for. And so he knew him through that. And so I think we were like, well, yeah, let's see if we can get him. So it was really through the guy at our, our label's connection that he was able to, uh, I think, talk Dave into doing it for a cheaper rate than he normally would charge. So, yeah, that was uh, one of the best things about being on Arena Rock was that, that Greg uh, did know Dave Friedman a little bit and was able to, to organize that, that recording session. He definitely was mostly just engineering, but he would have suggestions for for songs and for arrangements. And we would, you know, we would ask his opinion, even though we didn't really know him when we got there. Um, you know, we we trusted him, and uh, because we just liked the sounds of the records that he had done, and um, he had some creative input, but mostly was just doing the recording, the technical aspects. 
The majority of the album is tracked at Fredman's Tarbox Road Studios, located in Fredonia, New York. Fredonia um, is in upstate New York. That's where Dave Fredman has his studio. Yeah, only one song was recorded in Athens uh, at home. And um, also Will Hart from Olivia Tremor Control did some tape loops that we took up there and incorporated that into a song that we recorded with Dave. So very little of it was actually recorded in Athens. Most of it was done in Fredonia. Tarbox Road Studios is what it's called. It's just this house out in the middle of nowhere down the down this uh, dirt road, like totally, totally isolated. And Fredonia is a pretty small town. That was good, though. I mean, we've done the majority of our recording in Athens. And, you know, there's always a distraction or a friend dropping by or, you know, this, this way we, um, you know, we lived in the studio. He had, I mean, the studio's downstairs and then bedrooms are upstairs that we slept in. So there were, we could really, you know, we just spent a few weeks up there where we just focused completely on, on recording and um, we do kind of a nine to five recording with Dave. And then he would even leave the machines going for us to, to do stuff at night. So we would often, uh, you know, after a dinner break, you know, come up with stuff. I mean, a couple of the songs that we did in that manner where we were just kind of exp- experimenting uh, at night without without Dave even. So that was, it was great. It was just really all immersive and uh, just spent all of our time recording for a couple of weeks. At one point, Scott and Jeff from Neutral Milk showed up and were hanging out for a few days. And so, yeah, they paid us a visit. I can't remember what they must have been. I think they were in New York City and they came over for a few days uh, at that time. And so those two made it onto the album. But uh, other than that, it was just it was just the four of us. And in the end, they made a record. Will My Feet Still Carry Me Home? In both lyrics and sound, with its combination of piano, mellotron, and steel guitar, the opening track sets the tone of the record and introduces the reoccurring motif of dreams. And though it opens a dream and sound, Will My Feet Still Carry Me Home was actually one of the last songs written for the record. Yeah, it was surprising. It was, you know, one that I wasn't even sure if we would you know if it would make it onto the album and then it turned out to be one of one of my favorites and i mean we still play this it's, it's kind of a staple of our live shows we play it a lot because people like it and we we like playing it so yeah it was actually 
you know, not one that we had rehearsed hardly at all. So a lot of the arrangements just came together in the studio. And Laura actually was really instrumental in in getting, you know, really fleshing it out because she played a lot of the, you know, the piano track, the Mellotron track, as well as the pedal steel track. You know, she played all of those. So her magic is definitely shining on this one. Um, I do remember the pedal steel was, you know, the typical kind of country pedal steel that you see i can't remember if it was already tuned this way or if we tuned all of the strings to the same note um so that really kind of gave it that big majestic kind of sound you know bigger than you would get on just a regular slide guitar Dave had of Mellotron there, but honestly, I, I can't totally remember, but it sounds like the real deal. It's a slippery slope. I mean, we actually use it, have used Mellotron quite a bit on our albums, but you got to watch out because it's so identified with the Beatles, just particularly even Strawberry Fields Forever, that you don't want to, you know, if, if your song is already in any way 60s sounding and then you throw that on there, it's just going to sound like you're trying to ape the Beatles. Um, I mean, a lot of my lyrics are, I mean, I have some songs, you know, kind of tell a story and are more of a direct narrative, but more often than not, that's, that's not the case. The lyrics are a little more oblique or, or kind of murky. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one has definitely themes of, you know, self-doubt and mortality and, uh, you know, just kind of, kind of a yearning, yearning feeling. <laughs> Feet Still Carry Me Home is the track High Atop the Silver Branches. It's a buoyant and fuzzy number, featuring layers of sound such as clarinets and call and response vocals, all being held together by Wagland's rolling, march-like drums. Aaron came up with some great drum parts on this album. I mean, and that's one of one of one of my favorites. Um, yeah, I mean that arrangement was pretty well fleshed out. We had done a demo, um, but yeah, the drum part and the fuzz bass really worked well together. The clarinet and then the kind of call and response backing vocals is really cool. I like that and the little whistling parts. So yeah, just a lot of cool weird little elements that uh, 
you might not imagine working well together came together on that song pretty well. This is kind of a, an escapism kind of song about, you know, getting fed up with the real world and kind of putting yourself in fictional scenarios. Uh, I mean, it doesn't specifically mention that being in a dream state, but that's kind of the idea, I think, to, to kind of keep with that theme. Willowy Man is a sparingly arranged number that acts as a needed come down following the previous track's more boisterous sounds. Yeah, I mean, this is just a real simple, pretty song. I, I like the placement so soon at the beginning of the album because the first two songs are pretty upbeat and rocking, and then it gives you kind of a little a little breathing room. I mean, some people might have left it for later in the album, but uh, but yeah, I think after the initial onslaught of those two rockers, it, it kind of um, it's kind of nice to have a little break, a little mellow moment as a break. We generally um, on this album would record like guitar, bass and drums together. And then, you know, we might re-record some of the, the bass and guitar parts. So, yeah, we did a good bit of, of live stuff on this one. I think, you know, I just did the acoustic guitar tracks and then Laura overdubbed the clarinets. You know, it took me a minute listening back because it does sound like a flute, but then I remembered that that's actually several clarinet tracks that Laura kind of arranged uh stacked on top of each other but yeah it does it does sound kind of flute like listening back to this I, I didn't really have any much insight into the into the lyrics on this one but uh it's it, yeah it's it just kind of evokes a nice imagery of just kind of this nomadic character wandering the earth just a real natural kind of feel to it arrangement that features circus-like organs and a great McCartney-esque bass line. Bassist Brian Poole's Old Time Waves is a good example of what Elf Power and other Elephant Six bands did so well. It's a sound that's just as much indebted to indie rock as it is to the British Invasion, and illustrates the collective's ability to effortlessly craft these sort of perfectly warped pop songs. They're not for casual listening, and are best experienced through headphones. This allows the listener to catch the small details buried in the mix, 
such as this part. Listen closely. Good stuff, right? I think that was like a backwards tape effect um, that kind of just is a cool little segue to, to kind of bring you into the next part, you know? Yeah, we like to slip in weird little things to reward the headphones listeners. That was actually me playing the bass, which I love getting a chance to do. So this, yeah, this was one of Brian Poole's songs. He sings the lead on this and plays guitar. And so we switched off, you know, our usual roles. So I play the bass and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was just a beginner's luck, uh, <laughs> on my part of, of kind of fumbling around until I came up with a, with a cool bass part. I mean, it's a great song, so it's easy to come up with a cool bass line for it. <laughs> actually did a couple shows on the way up there so we did have all of our gear that we used to, to play uh so we used a combination of our own instruments and stuff that stuff that dave had at the studio the organ on that song was was just this cool old organ that he had there Driving pop of Jane once again evokes the dream imagery that's so prevalent throughout the record. One of the interesting aspects of this track is Carter's use of a Casio DH100, or as it would be more commonly known to Elephant 6 fans, the Zanzithophone. She was always great at having this arsenal of of weird instruments uh, and just, you know, being able to play lots of different things to add some variety to the songs. One thing that she played a lot on Dream and Sound and Red King and on a couple tracks on the Nutra Milk Airplane album is uh, this instrument that we dubbed the Zanzithophone. That wasn't its real name, but it, it's basically with a toy digital electronic saxophone uh, you know, it was marketed as a kid's toy, but it sounded amazing. I mean, we still use it to this day on our recordings um the main melody is played with that digital saxophone as ends of the phone so yeah that's kind of the featured instrument on on this song yeah the bass and drum interplay i like a lot aaron really he really holds back for the first half of the song and then when he kicks it in it really opens it up um so that was that was a great great arrangement on his part just a real kind of catchy nice pop song That's actually my friend Dan Donahue that uh, he made it into 
one of my dreams one night, and so I incorporated him into the song. Dan, uh, he played in Great Lakes for a number of years, and um, he has a new project called Dreamboat that's really good. He's also a graphic designer. Yeah, just a multi-talented guy and just a really good dude. Um, I mean, yeah, this, again, is, is a lot of dream imagery, and it's just kind of, you know, about this girl who's kind of a solitary creature and uh yeah just kind of looking at some particular dreams that she has but uh yeah this one i mean this is this is kind of a perennial fan favorite people people seem to like this song i mean a lot in our catalog The Passengers is an acoustic number that includes humming organs, subdued drumming, and a beautiful melody. And when combined with Rieger's tender vocal performance, the song creates a warm and comforting sound, evoking the last moments of an awakened state. This is another one that we didn't really have a fleshed out full band arrangement when we got to the studio um i mean i think i had done like an acoustic demo and we were thinking about keeping it acoustic but yeah i think the the real simple brushed drum part and the organ part really add, add a lot to the song but yeah that's not one that we ever really played live that much but uh but yeah listening back to it it's uh yeah i like it it's a cool song if the previous track is meant to signify the drifting from waking life then we dream and sound acts as the entrance into the dream state. Featuring contributions from Olivia Tremor Control's William Cullen Hart, the track's layers of mysterious sounds move in and out of focus, creating a sense of haziness, as well as a sort of lurking deviousness underneath. And though the article changes to a pronoun, We Dream and Sound does in a way act as the title track. I think just a dream and sound made it was was more fitting for the album title because it was you know more indicative of, of a, a bigger body of work you know as, like describing the album as a dream and sound whereas you know we dream and sound is is not doesn't doesn't have that same feeling so it's a slight very slight change but i think it's significant this one is is very poppy and very dark simultaneously which i like yeah, that's kind of a hard thing to pull off. You know, that wasn't a conscious goal or anything, but yeah, I uh, 
it's cool when you can create a song that kind of evokes both of those feelings. Most of that stuff is actually Will Hart's um, tape loops that we brought and incorporated into the song. You know, Will does that a lot on, on his music and he's just really good at, uh, you know, coming up with these bizarre, disorienting, like otherworldly sounds. Um, Will collaborated with us a lot on a bunch of those early albums, so it was cool to have his input even though he wasn't there in New York with us for the session. I really like the drum sound on this. It's kind of an overdriven, distorted drum sound that Pridman would get a lot on those Flaming Lips records. Yeah, this may be one of the points where we really liked that sound that he had gotten in the past and thought it would be effective uh, on this song. But, you know, I think we were wary of doing that too much because we didn't want to sacrifice our individuality and just, you know, and have Dave put too much of a stamp. But I, th I, don't, I don't think that really happened. I think that's our Farfisa um, that we used a lot live playing the main keyboard melody. But yeah, that's a great, like, really meandering, lengthy keyboard part um, that Laura plays on there. Aptly titled Carnival is a brief in-between song interlude. The mixture of sped up and unaltered instrumentation creates a disorienting yet playful effect and is nicely in keeping with the record's tone. I mean, obviously this is kind of just a, f a fun weird little segue it's it's under a minute long so it's not really a proper song but i always like that on albums when there's weird little mm -hmm. intermediary sections always like that um as a listener so this was one of the ones that we did uh like late at night when dave fridman had gone home and just left some tape machines on for us and uh you know it was just experimenting and and coming up with with weird stuff and scott splain from Milk and gerbils was there and he played the trumpet on this so yeah it was just kind of a late night fooling around kind of thing that that yielded some some fun results
following carnival is the song The Well, evoking a similar sense of darkness that was present in We Dream and Sound. The track is one of the heavier songs on the record. It showcases Wayglin's impressive skills as a drummer. another one of brian's songs uh i think i helped him write some of the lyrics but i don't remember and i hope he doesn't get mad if he hears this and i'm claiming that i did but i think i mean he he wrote the majority of this song and i may have helped him out a little bit um drums on this again are really cool really straightforward but then they open up at, at cool little times i mean to me it kind of has like that crowd rock kind of noise vibe which i don't even know if we I, I mean, we probably knew those records at that point. It definitely has a feeling unlike any of the other songs on the album. Brian plays a really amazing, weird, dissonant guitar solo that I like a lot. And yeah, the vocal interplay between me and Brian is, is is cool and unique, where I'm kind of echoing his lead vocal with the background. And then, yeah, the ending I really like. That was Brian's concoction, where the whole mix just kind of gets enveloped in this, in this guitar effect that uh, just kind of demolishes the mix, and it's just a weird ending. <laughs> Experiment is the one song from A Dream and Sound that was recorded entirely in Athens and is a cover of a song by the San Francisco-based experimental pop band Thinking Fellers Union, Local 282, who recorded for Matador Records in the early to mid-90s. We just really like this band a lot and like this song and uh, I think we were just fooling around with it at practice and we, we liked the, the arrangement that we came up with. Just did a real quick recording of it and... Um, 
you know, just thought it would fit on the album. And so we included it. Um, yeah, it's just a real pretty song. We really like these guys and uh, know these guys liked it. So that was nice to hear. But yeah, we didn't know them or anything. We just really, I mean, they're just a really cool, bizarre band that I always liked. Yeah, we did this with a guy, Chris Bishop, on a real real tape machine. He had a, like a semi-professional setup, but not, you know, he wasn't like really like a professional recording guy, but he would just record some of our friends' bands from time to time. He played in Fable Factory at one point, at least on some of the tours. He actually recorded the Deer Hunter Cryptograms album, okay. I think. Uh, that was kind of his biggest album that he did. And uh, yeah, I don't know. He kind of got out of recording. I, I'm not sure what, what he's up to these days. sound, we get the track from this record that's the nearest to my heart. Simon the Bird with a Candy Bar Head was everything I could have wanted from an Elephant Six song. It was interesting, concise, and quirky, the right balance between the old and new, and just a great pop song. And I only grew to love this song more when I eventually discovered some years later that the song's title character is a reference to the classic Weird Al Yankovic film, UHF. Not that many people have called that. Uh, yeah, UHF to me is an underappreciated uh, classic comedy from the 80s. I mean, people have their thoughts on Weird Al that he's, you know, obviously just people think he's silly. But that 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 movie to me is like really a, a comedic masterpiece. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I think I was watching that as I was writing the song and. The fact that it came from the character's dream made it seem like that I could fit that idea into this group of songs. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like, I mean, he obviously just mentions it briefly. And so I just kind of fleshed out the idea of who the bird with the candy bar head would be. And, you know, that he's gave him a name and, uh, you know, came up with this scenario where he's being bullied by the other birds. And so he's like, fuck you guys and takes off to make his way in the world. So, yeah, I mean, I just kind of took this one weird little line and idea and kind of fleshed it out. Uh, I think the bird noises were Aaron, our drummer, um, had a field recorder. It could have been, it was either Aaron or it could have been Jeff because both of them, had field recorders, these Marantz field recorders that you could get where you, that were run on batteries where you could just kind of go out and record, you know, nature sounds. Um, 
And I think it was Aaron that recorded those bird sounds and, and there's some other kind of nature sounds in there. So yeah, that was fun too. I mean, maybe it's a bit obvious to have a song about a bird with bird sounds in it, but I, I thought it was Rising and Falling in a Little World is a lullaby-like instrumental that is truly the audio embodiment of its title. Sounds rise and fall throughout, all the while being anchored by gentle acoustic arpeggios, which creates a calming effect and greatly sets the mood for the record's final song. simple arrangement i think it's just guitars and i mean a couple tracks of guitars i think i played the acoustic and i think brian played the electric guitar and then a couple tracks of clarinets stacked but yeah this one is actually one of my favorites i think it's just got a really cool sad melancholy feel to it dan donahue actually came up with that title I can't remember in relation to what, but I just had it written down as a cool title. You know, since this was an instrumental song, it kind of fit the feeling that, that the uh, the song evoked. Um, yeah, I don't know. Something about this song just has a really nice feel to it. And even though it's, it's instrumental, so obviously it doesn't, you know, have the weight that lyrics would give a song. It, it just has a really nice uh, dreamy quality to it. strong melody and exuberant strumming, A Dream and Sound's final song is the celebratory Oh What a Beautiful Dream. Uh, yeah, I like this one a lot too. It's just a catchy melody. It's got a cool breezy feel to it. Great bass line. Um, obviously, the dream imagery is, is pretty strong in this one as well. And then I really like the orchestral thing at the end. I don't remember what piece of gear that was specifically, but Dave Trimble called that the orchestra box. I mean, I, again, this is in 98, well before computer plugins, and I mean, we were recording on, on tape on this album. Oh, 
so uh yeah i can't remember i just remember that he called it the orchestra box but you can hear it all over the the soft bulletin i mean all those orchestral sounds are not really you know the the string sounds that they sound like they're just you know from this one weird piece of gear um so we used it just on the very end of the song i mean i thought that was a cool end to the to the album to kind of have it dissolve into this orchestral um kind of feel just at the very end as the last notes of oh what a beautiful dream gently descend the record slowly fades into a hidden track of ambient noises Honestly, I don't remember. I think that was a combination of some sounds that Aaron had recorded at home and brought in, and maybe we embellished them in the studio. But yeah, again, that was just kind of a treat for you know people that, that kept on listening a little longer than, than the average listener. For the album art, the band uses paintings from local Athens artist Andy Cherwick, as well as a piece given to them by a fan. Yeah, he's just a local friend of ours here in Athens that, uh, you know, he's just a great painter. And um, we just really liked uh, his paintings. And we, so we used, I think, three different ones throughout the, the artwork, you know, to give it some continuity. But yeah, just a local friend of ours whose who's art we, we liked and thought fit, fit the feel of the album. If you look on the inside, there's this really, there's just this weird um, wizard that this fan had had drawn on this piece of cardboard for us and uh given to us at a show in Chattanooga and I couldn't remember her name I mean I remember she I think she came to a couple shows every time we would pass through Chattanooga she was usually at our shows but uh yeah I felt bad I don't think I've seen her since but uh yeah she, she didn't put her name on the piece of artwork so um so yeah we just included it because we thought it was a, a weird weird picture Arena Rock Recording Company releases A Dream and Sound on May 11, 1999. Through Arena Rock's distribution, the record is able to reach a larger audience, which leads to new and exciting opportunities for the band. Uh, I mean, it did well. I mean, this seems like a fan favorite album. I mean, people like this album a lot, and we still play a good bit of these songs live. But uh, yeah, we toured a good bit, and we licensed this to labels in europe and japan around this time was the first time that we went to those you know finally started making it overseas and uh playing in europe and japan and places like that so yeah it was kind of the start of of a bigger bigger audience and getting the albums more internationally distributed a dream and sound would be the last record elf power would release through arena rock recording company opting instead to work with a number of other independent labels throughout the ensuing years and in 2001, Rieger and Carter would start Orange Twin, a conservation community and record label located in Athens. The lineup that made A Dream and Sound would make one more full-length record together before bassist Brian Poole's departure, with drummer Aaron Waglin leaving a few years later. But Rieger and Carter have continued Elf Power, consistently putting out great and interesting music, with their most recent full-length release being 2017's wonderful twitching in time. It's been 25 or so years since Rieger first began the Elf Power Project, and a little over 20 since the release of A Dream and Sound. And Rieger, who recognizes the many changes that have occurred since that time, is still able to look back on this period fondly. I hadn't listened to it in 
in a couple years uh, and I revisited it. It's weird listening back to your own stuff because, um, I mean, it really brings you back to how you, you know, the, the way that, that you were at that time. And obviously I've changed a lot since then. So there's certain things that I hear that I'm like, oh, well, I would have done that differently. It's a snapshot of, of who I was at that time and what the band was like at that time. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think it stands up and the songs are, the songs stand up and the recording sounds great. You know, it was, uh, I mean, working with Dave Pribben, that's the only time that we've ever worked with a big like name producer kind of guy, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a positive experience. I, I loved uh, getting to do that. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Andrew Rieger for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy A Dream and Sound and more from Elf Power at elfpower.com, various streaming platforms, and orangetwin.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.